0: Game Study Study Buddies, one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we know about. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. This is a show, of course, Michael, where we are reading books, game studies, seeing what's up, trying to help make them understandable for people who are not academics. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you are an academic, just give me a nice refresher or, or uh, introducing you to something you're not already familiar with. But uh, we have a method on the show. You know, uh, not a pedagogy, but a method, as we've learned, that is uh, you know, we, we have three broad ways of approaching what we choose for mm-hmm. the show. We choose canonical texts, things that uh, you know, the, these are your half-reels, your cyber texts, your Hamlets on the holodeck. Uh, and uh, what we do with those is like, oh hey, these are books that lots of people read. they're often in conversation. Let's uh, figure out what's up with them, you know, in case you want to know about that. Then we choose uh, other books that we think might be interesting to either uh, put in a conversation with canonical texts or just new books that we find cool. So these are, uh, you know, our Patrick Krogans. Mm-hmm. You no, know, our our gameplay modes. That's a little bit of an older book, but one that we think, or I at least think, didn't get talked about uh, enough or as much. Uh, these are your Playing Nature, the Alinda Chang book that we did, uh, you know, a few months ago. Uh, maybe a year ago, even at this point, right? A new yeah. book at that time that we thought was cool and interesting to talk about. And then there are things that we um, call wild cards, which are just books. <laughs> 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 and, w- and one time, a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, this month is what we might call a wild card. Mm-hmm. We've been threatening to do this book, I think, since the very beginning of the show. Since, you know, truly the first few episodes, it might have even been on our initial list of, you know, books we wanted to get to. But it is Jacques Ranciere's The Ignorant Schoolmaster, Five Lessons in Intellectual Emancipation. It is a uh, book written by a French Frenchman. I was going to say a French person, but a Frenchman. In, oh, I didn't write down the year of this. Uh, 1987 is the first French edition. Is the first, yeah, 1991 is the first English. But okay, 1987, first French edition. It's coming, oh, maybe 15 years into Ranciere's career. Uh, Ranciere, you might be familiar with, you might not. It's okay if you're not. Jacques Rancière is, is and was a professor of philosophy. Now he's at the EGS, I believe, is his primary affiliation, the European Graduate School, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting uh, composite graduate program that has lots of kind of critical theory or just theory professors who come and teach in its program. It's a PhD-granting institution. Um but his, for a very long time, he was a professor of philosophy at Paris 8, which was uh, kind of known as the, it might still be known, I don't really know, it, I haven't kept up with it, uh, but was kind of known as the French experiment, Experimental uh, Institution. So it's the idea of like all of the the big weirdos of <laughs> French <laughs> philosophy and theory and arts and things like that, all kind of worked there. So uh, some people who worked there are um, uh, Alain Badieu, Gilles Deleuze uh, Ranciere, of course, Foucault was there at one point, um, Guattari was there at one point, uh, Helene Cizou was there at one point, right, and so if you're familiar with kind of like French theory, capital T theory kind of work, meaning philosophy that was inflected in the arts and culture and politics from 1968 up until the 1990s, you're going to recognize a bunch of those names, and if you look at who taught at Paris 8 over the years, you're going to see a whole lot more of those kinds of people, uh, Ranciere was a student of Louis Althusser, uh, Louis Althusser, kind of a famous uh, French structuralist Marxist um, who became into prominence in the 1960s and, and, and then changed in the 1970s. He, he kind of um, uh, developed one theory of Marxism and then developed a different theory of Marxism after that. Um, and uh, very, there's a very famous book that comes out, uh, the kind of Althusserian moment in French um marxism and french philosophy and theory in general and that's uh, a book called reading capital from 1965 and it's a big co-written book between althusser and a lot of his students um some of the primary uh, contributors to that are jacques Rancière and uh etienne balabar who uh, Rancière and balabar are both still writing and mm-hmm. of course louis althusser and so that, that was a kind of moment where Althusser and several of his students, and there are more people who contributed to that, but those are some names that you might be familiar with immediately. And uh, what kind of happens after that is that um, Althusser kind of, uh, many of the ideas that are in Althusser's theorization of Marxism kind of run into their limit point with 1968, you know, what's kind of known as the student movement, where uh, Paris is essentially seized by leftists and uh, has to be beaten back by the French military. (laughs) Um, If you're not familiar with that, really interesting stuff. Um, And it is a massive inflection point for basically all leftist theorization and organization in Europe and to some extent the United States, even though the United States is having a lot of other stuff going on in 1968 and 1969. But so what happens is that the reason this is coming up in, in the context of Jacques Ranciere is that He is a Marxist, he is a theorist, and he kind of goes through this crucible, which is 1968. Uh, 1968 is also the thing that that has Dulles and Guattari eventually write uh, Anti-Oedipus, which is another massive book that kind of breaks with um, Marxist doctrine, uh, in a particular type of Marxist doctrine, uh, in the early 1970s. So... Ranciere lives through this same moment and ultimately uh, kind of comes to fame in 1974 when he publishes a book called Althusser's Lesson, which is a an extremely, um, uh, I don't know, in-depth in, in depth and brutal criticism of his <laughs> former advisor, Althusser. Um, and he kind of becomes famous based on that. Um, Althusser had uh, attained quite a bit of fame in France uh, and had kind of been on the wane after 1968. And, and, and transforms this kind of theorization. And Ranciere, um, in his kind of very explicit criticism, I wouldn't say cashes in on that. That's maybe not the appropriate term, but that's maybe one way of thinking about it. You know, their their reputations change. And so mm-hmm. um, Ranciere goes from being the student, being the young person, to kind of being a name and a voice within... Uh, French theory and, and within Marxist theory, and then very quickly becomes a kind of archivally focused philosophy guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, all of his books that, you know, a huge number of his books, uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, um, are centered on historical, for the most part, French movements that have to deal with the people rising up in particular ways. Mm Mm-hmm. And he really cares about education. So um, uh, what's it called? Knights of Labor, I believe, is the name of the book. Someone someone can fact check me on that later. But uh, he writes a book about factory workers and kind of self-education. Uh, how were factory workers in the 1700s, the late 1700s and then through the 1800s, how were urban workers, I guess maybe is the better way of putting it, how were urban workers self-organizing and coming to modes of understanding You know, how did they become poets and philosophers while working manual labor during the day? And then how did that contribute to like a class theorization before we would think of something like, you know, Marxist class theorization? Um, And then he does that with a bunch of different archives. Um, you know, very much, if you're familiar with the work of Michel Foucault, kind of a similar thing in the sense of has a big, broad apparatus of, of ways of thinking about the world and then looks to specific archives to understand how that archive either informs or transforms that big structural understanding. Um, you know, so Foucault does that with uh, the prison, the asylum, the uh, the hospital, um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Oh, those are kind of, I guess, the big, big three. Mm-hmm. Um, the and and what and I guess the university to some extent. All through is is often looking at sites of labor transformation. So he's looking at the factory. He's looking at uh, agrarian fields to some extent. He looks to philosophical writings. He has a book called "The Philosopher and His Poor" that's about reading the archives of philosophers, understanding what they think poor people are <laughs> uh, and what peasants are, which is which is fascinating. And then he has education. Um, and, and, you know, much like Foucault, uh, looks to very kind of specific archives. He's looking at specific letters or specific people or specific documentations. And that is where, sorry to monologue for this long time, Michael, (laughs) but, uh, this is where we get the ignorant schoolmaster, um, because he's looking at one educational movement, uh, in European history. Uh, Michael, have you read this before? You've been Are you familiar with Ranciere? I'm monologuing here because mm-hmm. I've read a lot of Ranciere <laughs> over the years, like a lot, a lot, a lot of Ranciere over the years. Um, and I, I don't think you and I have really talked about Ranciere all that much. I, what's your
1: familiarity with here? Have you read this book? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with this particular book prior to this moment, prior to having read it. Uh, I'm familiar with Ranciere. Uh, I think I probably first heard about him at like the the midpoint of grad school right between kind of my MA and starting my dissertation that's when i started noticing uh, a lot of people talking about like descensus um mm-hmm. which i think was his book that was translated in 2010 or 2011 right so like his newest book that was when roncier started showing up in kind of like the the mouths of people that i knew um, yeah, absolutely. To, sorry, sorry. To, yeah. to talk
0: a little bit about that reception moment, mm-hmm. the uh, yeah, Roncier was kind of like this piecemeal translated guy. You know, famous in France but not super famous in the United States. And then in that exact moment that you're talking about, like 2005 up through 2015, I think it's actually kind of died off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything that was untranslated started getting translated. Verso started doing them. You know, so so that really kind of got some salability behind it. And he was writing a huge amount on literature, his later career. uh, Mm -hmm. He began writing a lot about literature and a lot about art. And so he was really taken up in cinema studies, art history. um,
1: uh, And I I would assume this is probably where you're hearing it, too, in uh, literary studies. Yes. And in particular, uh, so, you know, I I read uh, a couple of things by Ranciere. Um, but the the thing that like the the majority or the bulk of my runcier experience or runcier knowledge comes from, um sort of ironically considering how how the this particular book comes to be, uh, is a tome called The Emancipated Spectator,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is uh, unsurprisingly for me his book on theater. Uh, And I say that it's sort of ironic that I know that book or I knew that book, but not this one, um, because that book, The Emancipated Spectator, comes directly out of this one, Uh, which was a thing that I put together um, in in short order. Uh, But the thing about The Emancipated Spectator that was really useful for me and made me really excited about Ranciere, it was recommended to me by um, someone on my committee. Uh, is that, so Ranciere is taking a look at a particular history of, uh, dramaturgy and sort of like theatrical, like practice and playwriting, um, specifically something like Bertolt Brecht's idea of epic theater, which I know we've talked about before. For instance, um, on the, uh, Brenda Laurel episode, uh, Brecht is a communist playwright um in uh Germany in the thirties and forties, and his kind of uh position is that traditional bourgeois theater by attempting a uh, a kind of mimetic realism, so you know obviously what is happening on stage is not real, but like by trying to have a realism effect by making you feel like oh, these characters could be real people, and this could be a real space. Uh, the theater is actually uh, shirking it's uh revolutionary or consciousness raising potential uh, by sort of acclimating people to reading the world as it is right. To take a very realistic quote unquote uh, setting and be like, yeah, that's how the world is. This is how we feel about things. And we don't have to question, you know, like what are, what are the forces that are structuring these characters lives like capitalism and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Brecht is very much against this kind of uh, soothing function of theater as he understands it. And he comes up with this idea of Epic theater where you're in, in video game language, but also in theatrical language, uh, your immersion is constantly being broken. Characters aren't presented as like real people. They are presented as sort of figures or ideas personified. They feel more allegorical than they feel psychological. Uh, people will address the audience. There's like breaks for song and dance numbers, right? A mixing of kind of aesthetic modes or sort of genres. And the point of all this for someone like Brecht is that by uh, using these techniques to draw attention to, again, the, the, the you know, larger social structures that are uh, running people's lives, uh, you can raise the consciousness of the spectator such that they leave the theater uh, ready to look for, you know, uh, the, the malign forces of capitalism uh, in this or that aspect of, of their uh, outside the theater life. Uh, The Emancipated Spectator is a fascinating book because it is all about Ranciere saying uh, that this totally uh, misapprehends what a spectator is and what it means to be a spectator in the theater because uh, it imagines that when you sit down to watch a play, uh, your brain essentially shuts down, Mm -hmm. which if you've ever been in the theater, if you've ever watched a play... You know for a fact that that's not true, that you you watch a play, you sort of keep track of things that are happening, uh, character motivations, uh, choices in stage direction or whatever. You notice things, and you piece those things together, and you build a kind of a model in your head of what this story is or what this play is and what it's doing uh Based on the experience of watching it, like that is what being a spectator is, is, you know, paying attention to a thing and then coming up with some sort of interpretation or like sense uh, uh, of what it is. Uh, and that's really where Ranciere is kind of like trying to plant his flag by saying that if we want like this theory basically of emancipatory art is not really that emancipatory because it assumes an idea of uh, the spectator that it, like it, it constructs right the idea of uh, in in the language of this particular book the stultified spectator right it, it takes that as a given and then uh, creates its kind of uh, like political program based on based on making up a guy. Based on making up a kind of person who does not exist in the theater, and it's just like, here's how we get political action. And Ranciere is saying, like, no, 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 you can't, like, if you want to, like, connect with, like, the spectator and, like, do stuff with them, you have to understand that they're thinking beings. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Ranciere is very careful, I mean, and it's, you know, his um, background, I would assume, but he's often very careful, or at least in English translation, it is made, you know, (laughs) that's the thing, right? Ranciere's never writing in English. He he's being translated, and he's being translated by lots of different people. You know, Kristen Ross translates the ignorant schoolmaster, and I I feel very confident that there are there are things like uh there's a very famous here word we'll talk about a little bit later, that's called the distribution of the sensible. Mm-hmm. Um kind of this this, that all the translators at this point have kind of agreed, like, uh, oh, it needs to be translated this way. Where it's not really in 1991 being translated that way. Um and so there there are these kind of um you have to begin to recognize kind of movements within Ranciere um, that that are signifying particular kind of things, uh, even if the translation doesn't necessarily match up, if you can only read English like I am. Uh, but the reason I say that is that uh, th- this kind of uh, carefulness around language is, uh, you know, Ranciere is very unwilling often to be like, this is a class difference, right? Mm-hmm. He's unwilling to be like um, the the upper classes experience theater one way and the lower classes experience it another way. He's so careful to be like there is a from from the intelligentsia, right, who are imagining what a theater goer is from their perspective. This is what they think a theater goer is. But if we look from another direction, you know, if we we like read news reports about what was happening in the theater, it's obviously not true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's looking all of that kind of work. You know that you're describing it's not really in the emancipated spectator weirdly enough as a book it actually so it shows up in his book as thesis but all of that is informed by him reading firsthand accounts of what it was like to be in a theater in the 17 and 1800s mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's fascinating that all of this kind of you know what you just laid out big theorization. Big theorization that's coming from a a pretty, um, you know, explicit archival relation.
1: This book in particular was a joy to read, not only because, as I said, kind of the the seeds of these arguments about theater are weirdly enough in this book about uh, (laughs) the misadventures of a of a French guy trying to teach French in Belgium without speaking Flemish. Uh, But this book speaks so directly to my dissertation that I am, I'm not astonished that no one ever told me to read it because, and I think this is a thing that I've gestured at before on the show, uh, periodization in academia can be very weird such that uh, I think me working on uh, 16th and 17th century, primarily English literature, uh, Someone who recommended that I read a book about something that happened in the early 19th century in France uh, might arguably be reading me astray or leading me astray, uh, in the sense that uh, I would have to do a lot of work to pull some of the ideas here back into the historical context where I work. That said, um, and I don't know how much you've looked at my notes on this uh, yet, Cameron, mm-hmm. but there are points in this book where uh, Ranciere is essentially obliterating the arguments of the people, like the historical figures that I am talking about in my chapters on uh, 16th and 17th century humanist classroom practices, right? What do uh, the 16th and 17th century humanists think like makes a good classroom and how do they structure kind of their pedagogy and all of these assumptions, like very sensibly, of course, because of, uh, uh, how, how culture works are somewhat current in the French educational system. And then this book is just uh, incredible. I'll, I'll I'll shout out some of these points when we get there. Uh, But there's, there's a move that this book makes uh, about the distinction between rhetoric and poetry. That is literally a, a core argument of my, uh, one of the chapters of my dissertation.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to get there. The, okay, so we've been talking for, you know, 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. What's this got to do with game studies? <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's going on here? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, to talk about that, do you want to just, like, get into it?
0: We, we can. I, I mean, I, I do mm-hmm. want to say, one, you know, not, yeah. not a line of defense, but a line of uh, explication here at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because we all know that that's the uh, emancipatory move. His explication. yes, uh, which we'll talk about it when we get there. If that if that's a little that's a little funny joke for you to uh, listen to the rest of the episode, and then listen to it again. Mm-hmm. Then you'll ha ha ha. But um, this is a book that's entirely about what what is what happens when you learn, mm-hmm. right? I mean mm-hmm. it, it is a, it is about a moment in post enlightenment Europe um, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. In which there are big questions in Central Europe, so kind of like f- everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, west of Germany, basically, mm-hmm. it seems like, where everyone is wondering what makes education work and like what's good about education. And there are all these kind of enlightenment humanist ideals. Meaning, you know, ideas about what makes a subject, what makes a person, what makes, um, uh, you know, how does one improve or transform the mind? And sometimes those mean the same things for some people and sometimes they don't. Um, And there are all these questions. And that is a massive question within both game studies and within game design Mm -hmm. uh, to my mind. And that's why I kind of push this book and why I think it's important for us to think about and why it's always been very helpful for me kind of running around in the back of my mind and and why I kind of bristle so much at many of the claims that get made within mainline game studies and game design, which is that game studies and game design often have an implicit user Mm -hmm. uh, who is... You know, I, I had a similar reaction to The Emancipated Spectator that you you did, Michael, which is like, oh, yeah, this is kind of like how I in, engage with things. and Whereas, like, I'm reading other things, and that's not when I'm engaging with things. And that's because, uh, you know, a spectator has a kind of uh, direct relationship with um, the thing that they're looking at, you know, the film or the, the theatrical production they're looking at, and a kind of indirect relationship, meaning that they have a kind of uh, subjective, personalized, this is what I like, what I don't like, and then they have a structural one. Where, you know, they are sitting somewhere and the thing is happening in front of them and they, you know, if you sit in a movie theater, you're meant to sit quietly and you're meant to, like, look at the thing and there are different cultures that have different cultural practices there. Um, But, you know, it's a didactic form, as we say. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron Sierra is tracing that kind of vibe. Right. which is definitely a vibe within, within um, you know uh, game design in particular, any time that you see a discussion that is about game mechanics that are better or worse than others or ways of juicing a mechanic that makes it better than the unjuiced version or uh, ways of communicating information to a player via UI or exposition mm-hmm. or some combination of those and how that is better or worse than some other version of doing that, That might be true in a general and broad sense, meaning that if we polled 100 people, they might find one better than the other. But that also has uh, an implicit structure to it, you know, an indirect relation, which is that there is a... The the game, the designer of the game is bringing a structural relation and then asserting that it is real and true, Mm -hmm. where a player might not experience that, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. this is part of both of our uh, kind of... uh, I don't know if problem, but like... um, big question marks when things like immersion or flow show up, Mm -hmm. right? Where I think you and I both have, you know, diffractive relationships with those that don't really align with the way that they get written about quite often. Um, And certainly when game designers talk about them, I, I, (laughs) I I often, I'm like, yeah, that's not how I'm experiencing this game at all. And so what Ranciere is saying, you know, or why the ignorant schoolmaster is helpful, I think, Is that the ignorant schoolmaster by looking at, and this is going to sound really weird when I say it, but by looking at 1700s and 1800s (laughs) methods of thinking education is going to provide us with a really interesting kind of parable or allegory or a similar situation to the way that game design imagines its players. Mm Mm-hmm um uh you know uh, games and the game designers and and games academics have an imagination of the people on the user end of those things that uh is similar i think to the to what call what Ron Sierra calls the old master uh their mm-hmm. relationship to um uh the uh to the person being educated the student mm-hmm. and uh the emancipated method which we'll figure out in a, what it is in a minute that might be, I, I'm not saying that, that uh, we have to you know <laughs> these, these methods, but it might be helpful for thinking about the, the weird variability of player interaction. Um, that it's not just throwing curveballs you know, at the designed method. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that Jason Grinblatt, uh, one of the designers for um, Caves of Cud, this is one of the things he talks about quite often. Right, you know, for you know, for him, uh, glitches aren't glitches necessarily, or, or uh, programmatic errors are not programmatic errors. They're often opportunities for players to assert themselves or to engage in the world in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Something he was just talking about at Roguelike Celebration a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, something similar could be said for thinking about the relationship between instruction in games and the assertions we make about how players interact with
1: games and what players are actually doing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, on another level just to also i think make this clear this kind of thread uh the pedagogical potential of games remains a kind of uh what one, one of like sort of the 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 arrows in the quiver of defending games as a as a former as a medium uh mm-hmm. the ability yeah. of games to uh contribute to education in some way or to teach us things you know i'm thinking of like uh uh james paul g's uh what video games can teach us about literacy and learning i think that's the whole title I think that's
0: the that's really funny that's the subtitle i think oh okay <laughs> well uh uh you can you can keep talking and I'll pull it up for for us
1: uh anyhow right uh the to you know contextualize that obviously uh we're we're kind of past this culturally, but there was a point um. In, oh in no, the, you're
2: right.
0: You oh, got it. Excellent. You got it. When, uh, for some reason I thought there was a, a title on top, but you have the yeah, what video games have to teach us
1: about liter- learning and literacy. Learning and to literacy get it flipped. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um but that that's a that book is a particularly great example of and I'm not saying that like G is wrong to have written that book and, and defended games on this ground also. Uh but like that book is a guy who is a trained uh, rhetorician, right? He's a retcomp person um literary studies, I think also a little bit too, but like that book I've encountered mostly in retcomp settings. Uh he takes that book and he's like, hey, here is how like the process of like the the backstory on that book also is that he is an older man who ends up having a son uh, later in life, and uh his son is playing video games and he watches his kid play video games. And is sort of boggled by how his son can pick up how to play a game despite being, he's, you know, like eight years old or something, right? This, this He he understands suddenly that this kid, uh, when he plays a video game, he's like playing Sonic, I think, Sonic Adventure. Uh, he's processing an incredible amount of information and figuring out how to do things. Uh, and being a, a sort of retcon person, James G is like, oh, this is kind of like what it's like to teach someone to read. Uh, and so there is, uh, a sort of tradition of defending games as pedagogical instruments, um, either in practice or in theory, right? Either games exist that do this, or we can make games that, uh, help us teach people in this or that way.
0: Ranciere throws a big wrench in that machine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. I, I don't know if this book like proves anything right or wrong. You know, I, I don't think that's the, and that's not how I, I think you should... You know, if you're hearing us talk about this, don't take this as like, and here, you know, one cool Frenchman absolutely (laughs) destroys video game studies' assumptions. Uh, That's not what's happening here. Uh, But what is happening is that Ranciere is looking at a historical moment and pointing out how all the assumptions that we live within now, right, in the 20th century, uh, well, for him in the 20th century, for us the 21st century, Um, The assumptions about education broadly within, like, quote-unquote, like, Western democracies, you know, um, uh, similar education systems, um, all of those are based on premises that uh, uh, should maybe be questioned a little bit uh, due to Joseph Jacotot. Mm-hmm. Do you—I— I would tell the story, Michael, but I feel like you're going to get such a delight in telling the story about what Joseph Jacotot does Mm -hmm. that I'm going to hand it over to you if you would like to tell the story. Because this is the most, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but the most Michael-let
1: story on the planet. I... I would not categorize it as that, uh, but I'm interested in hearing your rationale for it. I mean, th- I I very much like this story, but I did not read this, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is a this is my stuff.
0: <laughs> but this, uh, well, I say that because this sounds like a story you would make up. I guess
1: I guess that's true. Okay, so
0: <laughs> yeah, like it sounds like if you're like making a tweet thread and you were like inventing some historical fiction, mm-hmm. you know, and like you would invent Joseph Jacquotot. Mhm.
1: So the man who the, the man the teacher who knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's how this works. Um uh Joseph Jekotat is a lecturer in uh I think literature at a university in France. I don't remember which one off the top of my head, but it's the early 1800s. Uh, he's got kind of a education slash like political slash military career behind him. Uh, you know, sort of like uh, French Revolution and all that stuff is has kind of um, happened. Uh, he's bounced around a couple places and eventually he works himself into a position where he gets assigned to teach French in uh, Belgium. Which, at this point uh primarily or at least at the part where he is going to be sent to teach uh does not speak French but rather speaks Flemish uh this is a problem in the f- in for the fact that uh jacotat uh does not speak Flemish himself and he is going to uh Belgium in order to teach his students how to speak French, which they do not know how to speak right so uh he is trying to teach his students that he cannot actually communicate with uh, in terms of like verbal like speech, how to uh, speak the language that he is speaking without them understanding what he's saying. Yeah, they have no language in common. Yes. Like nothing. There's no
0: there's no direct communi- There's a translator, apparently, sometimes, mm-hmm. but there is no direct verbal communication between the students and the
1: teacher. Yes. So, uh is not in Belgium immediately, but he's kind of on his way. Of course, this is it's 1818, so it takes a while to get from place to place. And ahead of himself, he sends out uh copies of a book to all of his potential students. Um this book is uh The Telemach, which is a uh, sort of I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but it's like a, a it's a very common kind of thing from uh this time period. It's a parallel story to the Odyssey, right? Written by a uh I think 17th century French author. Anyhow, um it's the story, uh it's like the adventures of uh, Telemachus, who is the son of Odysseus. Uh, who is left uh you know fatherless as odysseus is off wandering during the odyssey. So uh it's this you know the story of Telemachus and kind of all of the things that he is doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh this it it is uh 1699 mm-hmm. uh by Finelon, Archbishop of Cambrai.
1: <laughs> yes. So it's like that kind of book. <laughs> uh so it happens that in Brussels a bilingual edition of this book has just recently been published. So, you know, on uh, one set of pages, it's got the uh, story in French. And then on the other set of pages, it's got the story in Flemish. Uh, Jacques Gautat has a copy of this book delivered to all of his students. And then, as uh, Ranciere tells us, through an interpreter. So presumably, right, he's hiring like courier interpreters or something of this sort. Uh Uh, tells these students, you know, uh, basically class is going to start in a month or whenever it is. Jocko taught can actually get to Belgium. Uh, before that happens, what you need to do is use the bilingual edition here, read through the first half of this book. And then when you've gotten to the halfway point, go back and read it again and again, right? Do this as many times as possible. Until you feel like you are reading, like you, you can like get some sense out of like the French, uh, you know, use use the Flemish part to, to help you. Right. Uh, but try to understand the French. And then uh, once we've gotten to the halfway point, then you can uh, read or recite like the the, the back half. And then write your responses to me, right? Like, write down what you have read. And that's what I'm going to take a look at. And that's what we're going to go forward with uh, in our little uh, teaching adventure here. Uh, Roncier, Roncier, um, jacques goes in uh, basically expecting all of his students' work to be garbage. Like, he, he's just like, you know, how, how how good could they potentially be at reading and writing in French when literally none of them know French to begin with, and all I've done is send them this book? To his incredible surprise, uh, jacques Otat arrives and discovers his students know French. <laughs> Uh, at least you know they, they like they can articulate their thoughts about what they've read. They can recite the Telemach, uh, even though he was not there, and also does not speak Flemish. But now they are speaking and writing in French, and yeah,
0: and, and they not only like they're not only uh, replicating the book, right? They're right. not just like saying phrases. They are able to do literary interpretation.
1: Yes. And explain it in French. Mm -hmm. They are writing original work in French, and he has not actually done anything other than tell them what book to read and how many times. Like basically, like giving them a reading schedule. So this uh, for Jeckotot. Completely overturns what he had until then assumed uh, was the model of education, which is that you need an instructor, right? A a schoolmaster who knows things and the process of education is about like taking the information that is in the schoolmaster's head and somehow beaming it into or mediating it into the student's mind. Right, that that is what education is. It's about this kind of intellectual relationship between the teacher and the student, and the teacher uh, giving the student uh, more information or uh, uh, helping them practice skills. Right, uh, like the the kind of uh, it's a very specific and kind of hierarchical model of teaching. And it turns out for for at least, right? He he looks at this and he's like, actually. Uh, this suggests that learning is not about what the teacher knows, it's about something else entirely.
0: Yeah, that that maybe, maybe a teacher... Is not the gateway into knowledge, yes, and even more than that, maybe our like understanding of what knowledge is is uh, is wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And so then he goes on. This is like the most like Willy Wonka ass thing on earth because Jean uh, Joseph Jacotot then goes on to become the originator of a method where no one knows anything. Yes, the
1: panacastic school.
0: It's great. And it becomes like a hit. Like yeah. it becomes a, for a few years, for like 20 years or maybe 15 years, um, it becomes a pedagogical movement that you, that people, that students can learn things with basically a facilitator mm-hmm. along for the ride. You know, mm-hmm. not really someone who is a educator or a master or a, uh, you know, the 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 structural term that Ron co- comes up with for this this is a very french theory kind of uh you know phrasing he calls this the old master Mm -hmm. you know the person who knows best who understands you know who who is guiding you along and specifically always holds a student in a position of ignorance meaning that uh at every turn the old master is there to say ha 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 you have you have progressed from first grade to second grade I am here to, to know what is going to happen in third grade, yeah. and you will get there. And when you get to third grade, they say, "Ha ha ha!" I know what will happen in fourth grade, so I'll help <laughs> you get to fourth grade, right? Um, and you can see, I mean, this is this is education. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the way that we structure education uh, today, uh, broadly in, in the United States. You know, is what I can say, which is that it is it is based on um, the presumption that someone in the room knows what you don't, and that you and there is a bar that you need to clear with memorization, structural understanding, whatever, and then clearing that bar is the reason you are there. Mm -hmm. Um, To reveal yourself as ignorant in front of another old master at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. And And so so the, well, just the one other thing I want to say is that the book kind of presents itself as like a murder mystery. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like, what happened? What happened to Joseph Chakotat? Why don't we all learn this way now? If we could all learn French independently uh with each other you know cuz there's a lot of like student co-learning going on here right they're working together to figure it out um if that's possible then what happened
1: mhm uh
0: yeah. so i i i don't know yeah sorry i interrupted you you were going to say something
1: oh i just wanted to to drop a couple a couple of other things that jeko taught ends up teaching people that he does not know how to do
0: <laughs> these, these are so good
1: uh how to paint <laughs> um how to play the piano <laughs> Uh, and how to uh, read and write Hebrew.
0: Hebrew. He becomes an expert in Hebrew, unrelated to this. <laughs> that He learns, it, it seems like he's applying his own method. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know Hebrew, and no one teaches it to him. <laughs> uh, yes, and what's so funny about the arts is that, and he does a bunch of other kind of like academic fields, too, because he eventually ends up, this is skipping forward in the book, but I don't think that these... Uh, and it goes to situations. I don't think they really matter one way or the other. They could be anywhere. Uh, but he eventually teaches at a military academy, and he's teaching people, like, fortification. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which Which he served as an artilleryman. So he does know about these kinds of things, right? Like, he's been in the military, and he purposefully... Because he, he still doesn't speak the, the language that's necessary to do it. Um, and so, you know, he's just like, here's how you do it. It's really funny that the... Uh, that, like, the people learn how to speak French, the students learn how to speak French, no one thinks they learn how to paint. Like, no. <laughs> no one agrees <laughs> that they learn how to paint. But they do get something else that, that will get you, I think. Um, uh, yeah, so what, what do we learn from this, Michael? What is the broad theorization that Ranciere is drawing out of this extremely odd story of Jean, or I keep saying Jean, <laughs> Joseph Jacotat? Jean Jacotot would be a better name. Yeah. I just gotta say that. That I, would have that has the right cadence to it, I think.
1: I looked this up and I actually think he is sometimes, I think his full name might have been, and he might sometimes be referred to as Jean Joseph Jacotat. Um oh. but uh because you know the French. Anyhow, mm-hmm. um the the big thing that Ranciere is is able to kind of deduce from this, um, and it's also the thing that Jacotot uh, to some degree deduces, uh, is that well, to, to just, like, say it up front, uh, all intelligences are equal. That there is yeah. not, in fact, uh, they are equal in nature, right, it is the the thing to say there. That there is not, in fact, a sort of uh, more perfected intelligence that, for instance, the the master, the old master has. Uh, and that there's this kind of process of taking the student's inferior intelligence and slowly building it up. Uh, the intelligence should rather be understood as a kind of uh, force for a force that human beings have, right? That uh, quite literally uh, we use to make the world intelligible to us, understandable or manipulable. Um, it is the a kind of desire to communicate, right, to make oneself understood, but then to be able to understand what other people are saying or doing. Uh, that's that's like one of the 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 real big things here, uh, and you know the. The problem, as as you might see, is that this hits at the, uh, like, b- the horrible, like, shriveled beating heart of the entire hierarchical system of education that has existed up until that point and continues to exist today, uh, but this is where my kind of historical grounding comes in handy, uh, the, the entire argument for early modern humanism, humanism is kind of a classroom practice, uh, one of the things that they continually say is that, all right, um, kids learn, obviously, uh, but uh, they learn uh, what they tend to call, and, and Ranciere picks this up through Jacotot, uh like they learn the mother tongue. Right. When you're a little kid in uh, the 15th century in Europe, um, you're bopping around the house being being a child and you learn to speak, obviously, as children, uh, you know, learn to speak from imitation and kind of just uh, as a matter of course of things. Uh, And then the humanist schoolroom is this thing that sort of comes in. It's like, no, we're going to take all of the boys. And of course, it's always the boys who have reached like age 10 to 12. Um, We're going to take them to the school where they will really learn. And in order to really learn, we are going to teach them a new language, which is Latin. And that is, you know, the language of the patriarch, the language of history, the language of culture. And it's superior to the, the feminine mother tongue, right? This thing that they this sort of half shod thing that they sort of put together on their own. No, we're going to institute like a systemic. A model of learning that is going to uh, create men who know how to exist in civic society and so on and so forth. Uh, And Jacotot realizes that, no, actually, the principle of all learning might be the thing that allows you to get the mother tongue. Right, that there aren't two different types of intelligence. There aren't two different types of learning. There's one type of learning, uh, and it's the same thing as, uh, the, the child sort of trying to figure out how to speak in order to make its, uh, desires and sort of self known. Uh, In the household that there is not. And, and, you know, you can pick out a lot of sort of like maybe feminist inflection from the ways that I've set this up. This is not stuff that Rancière or Jacotade is going to get at. It's just kind of implicative. I want to uh, flag that. But anyway, uh, yeah, like this idea that uh, figuring things out, that learning things is just kind of a thing that maybe people do. And it's not necessarily something that needs to be uh, structured hierarchically. And then, of course, the question becomes, why then do these hierarchical systems exist and why do they perpetuate themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that, That's kind of what the I would say the last what two chapters of the book mm-hmm. are, are dedicated to, like what's going on here? Uh, You'll notice that we haven't really moved chapter by chapter through this book so far, and we probably won't, I would say, uh, other than maybe here at the end somewhere to be like, here's what's happening, because this is not a book in the way that we would normally approach a book, you know, (laughs) in this in this show. This is one philosophical essay that is split up into five different sections, and those sections are, I'll be honest with you, you know, tell me if you disagree, Michael, but they're mostly aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are about Ranciere telling a story, and, you know, uh, shout out to Kristen Ross for this translation, and, and is a great stylist period. I mean, that's very clear across all of his work, but uh, Kristen Ross renders this in a way where it is, it's is—it's riveting to be like, what's Joseph jacotot going to do next? This mm-hmm. this wild educator, what's he going to get up to?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, it, you mentioned it's like a, a murder mystery, right? And I was thinking the thing that it reminds me of a lot is like Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, that's a book, it's not, it's a A murder mystery in the sense that uh the question is like how did a murder happen uh but you know at the beginning uh the murder happened you know who died you know who did it and you know how and you have a pretty good sense as to why so like all the traditional mystery uh elements are sort of evacuated Mm -hmm. and similarly here uh we have and, and like uh in marquez's uh novel where he's working kind of on his own background as a journalist. We have Ranciere taking all of this archival stuff and then uh, working it into a not fictional, right, but sort of uh, he he narrativeizes it and tells this like bizarre little story about and. The end of the first chapter is just, you know, so good because he uh, runs runs through a lot of the stuff that we all said. Um, And then the last line of the first chapter is all this because a learned man, a renowned man of science and a virtuous family man had gone crazy for not knowing Flemish. (laughs) Like all of this happened because of this. Yeah, he just didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so
0: he did. So he, so they come up with this method, or, or uh, Jacques Cotot comes up with this method, and so you know the it's predicated on kind of obliterating the one thing that that you brought up before, right? Two types of intelligence, right? We have this idea that there's kind of the master's intelligence and the student's intelligence, and that transforming one into the other is like the work of education. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the standard system. So when we still live with it, um. What what Ranciere does, uh, you know, kind of using some of the words of Jacotot, you know, Christian Ross, the translator in the translator's introduction, is pretty clear that Roncier does a lot of blending of, mm-hmm. of both his and Jacotot's archival voice in this book. Sometimes there are full sentences or phrases that are just ripped out of Jacotot and put into the thing, but without quotation, um, you know, uh, on purpose, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ranciere is trying to get us to to realize the, what we've been saying this whole time which is like this is the world we live in you know Roncier is writing in the 80s and he's trying to get you to read this and be like Jacques Tart could be talking about 19 you know 80 whatever mm-hmm. in France but he's not but he could be and so there there's a stylistic reason for kind of stripping that stuff but the so I'm not quite sure if this language is original to Ron or Jacques Tart or some sort of combination of the two but Roncier kind of gives us two different terms that are really helpful um, one is intelligence, right, which is this kind of capaciousness to absorb, learn, transform the self with knowledge, mm-hmm. and the other one is will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the desire to do so. You know, I, I think one could trans or one could transform the word will into desire in this book and not lose a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But, but basically, what, what he says is that within our current education system or within this kind of humanistic enlightenment education system. Um, what happens is that the will is arrested. you know, The will is grabbed and, and forced into looking at only the objects that the old master cares about. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is on page, um, let's see here, uh, on page eight. This is very early in the text, but this is a quote. Um, quote, the child who recites under the threat of the rod obeys the rod and that's all he will apply his intelligence to something else. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then skipping a couple sentences, and thus the child acquires a new intelligence that of the master's explications. Later, he can be an explicator in turn. So, right, Ranciere is saying that, you know, within the, the standard system of education, what one desires to do or what one's will is directed toward is not necessarily what one's intelligence is directed toward. Um, this is why you can be bored in math class mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right? This is why you can hate math class, and this is why you can be extremely excited uh about in in a class that maybe you're not even doing well in right because your will is invested in reading but perhaps not test taking uh or perhaps you really like reading um novels in your uh class your your English class, but you don't like writing essays and you're not good at it right. Um, the, so your, your will can be really invested in the reading and really enjoy that kind of thing, but not be invested in, uh, the standardization that the old master is bringing to you. Um, so, so, so Ranciere is saying, okay, well, what, how does Jean Jacotat, gosh, Joseph Jacotat, how is he, uh, his method proclaims to like unite these two, right? That The mm-hmm. will and the intelligence work together. And that's what he calls emancipation. Mm-hmm. Where emancipation is directed learning that is kind of intrinsically uh, gratifying. And it's intrinsically gratifying because the from Jacques Ruta's perspective, and I guess Ron Sears as well, the student is understanding themselves as a learning person, not as someone who is insufficient to the old master. Mm-hmm. Meaning that when I sit down in shop class. And I begin making a birdhouse. For jacques and Ranciere, what's beneficial and good about that is that I'm learning how these things fit together. How do you make an angle? How do you fit two things? You know, how do you nail two boards together? How do you put a roof on it? How do you paint it? How does it look good? And I'm able to kind of learn that and do it on my own. What would be unbeneficial would be to look at the world's greatest birdhouse <laughs> and have your teacher constantly say... Hey, 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 hey! You need to get that that door right. Hey, 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 hey! You need to get that that uh, uh, you know, um, that roof exactly right. Oh, the shadow that you're painting on the front—that's uh, not right. You got to fix that. Um, that that is stultifying, right? That, mm-hmm. that is the thing that is bringing you in alignment with a particular kind of thing. Notably, this is the system of education we have both within um uh you know uh, humanities education uh or or stem education but it's also the education we have in applied trades Mm -hmm. although i could i could forgive that because if you like install a sewer line incorrectly uh it might blow up yeah (laughs) or like so i get you know maybe perfection toward that right but you know there's the uh the popular meme that was going around uh uh maybe last year, right? Which is that, um, about the difference between trades education and, you know, uh, other forms of education, which is in the trades, if you do something wrong, right? If you, uh, uh, weld a pipe wrong, or if you like solder, you know, copper pipes incorrectly, uh, the the way that you uh get a better grade and the way that you do that is you do it again and you do it better, right? Mm-hmm. And you learn your tool and you understand how it functions. You don't just fail and move on because mm-hmm. then you'll never be successful at the thing you want to do, right? That's actually probably closer to Jean Jacotot than, oh gosh, Joseph Jacotot. <laughs> Jacotot is probably closer to J. Jacotot. It's probably closer to him than J. The Humanist. J. J. Jacotot. That's my new D&D character, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> Uh, but sorry, sorry to get off on on a long thing, but I'm trying to give these examples of the difference between them and that we have language here, right? The intellect or, 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 or uh, the intelligence and the will mm-hmm. um, And that that Jactad is really interested in understanding how to make those work in concert um, to get you emancipation, which is you understanding you the a, a person, understanding that you can go and interact with the world and come and, and uh, uh, come out of that interaction with, knowledge and more importantly knowledge of your own uh, capacities Mm -hmm. right that you can pick up a book and read it and understand something that's going on and not have to compare yourself to the expectations of some sort of instructor um you know we're we talk about this regularly on the show and it's you know because my pedagogy was hugely in fact impacted by reading this book in undergrad um where and you know this is how I teach all classes I I think everyone has equal intelligence like I'm I'm Jean-Jacques God Damn it, I am Joseph Jakuchat in that sense, right? Like, I just think that like with a book and a little bit of a facilitator to help you move along, everyone could probably read everything. Um, uh, you know, someone to help answer questions or help clarify things is always helpful. But I, I just think that this works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've done it enough in the classroom to, to feel confident that some version of this is sufficient to, to doing it. And it helps people understand that they can learn on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and the education is not the rod, right? Mm-hmm. As, as Ron Roncier puts it, but it is some other thing. It is personal transformation. Um, the grade is not the thing that matters, you know, about sitting in a room with other people doing education. Um, and, you know, that's uh, within uh, the education system, you can only bend that so far, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, you have to give people grades. Um, and ultimately there's a negotiation that happens between those things but you know that's we've talked about this multiple times on the show if you want to read game studies books and you want to understand what's going on there the best thing for you to do is to pick up those books and find a couple people who want to read them with you and then start reading Um, because that's going to start giving you the tools to figure everything else out and more importantly it does the thing that Shako Taught wants you to which is to recognize that one can be intellectually emancipated that you can engage the world and learn um, without any formal structure. Mm-hmm. And that seems important. How Do
1: do you see ways that this immediately interacts with games? Well, like as you were reading the book? I mean, absolutely, right? Like, I mean, what are games other than uh, little objects that we fiddle around with until we figure them out in the same way that Jacotat tells his students to fiddle around with this copy of the Telemach until they can speak French? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, uh, there's, uh, uh, I mean the, the way that I think Ranciere ends up putting it, I don't even remember if I quoted this in my notes. Right. But, um, the, the way that the book, uh, locks the student and the instructor into kind of this relationship, uh, where their intelligences are, I, I, is equalized is the word that he uses.
0: Uh, yeah, equality yeah. I think shows up yeah. quite often. Yeah, equal intelligence.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the book really is sort of like the locus of where the student is doing their work. Uh, the instructor is kind of there as, as you've already said, kind of a, a sort of like backup facilitating force or sort of clarificatory force. Uh, and this is just, I mean, this is how games work, right? Now, obviously, games also have like tutorials and stuff in them that are, that are popping up. But, you know, notably, if you look at the history of games, uh, Tutorials or sort of extensive tutorials, uh, are fairly new. Uh, you know, or they at one point they were relegated entirely to the the pack-in manual. Uh, you, you boot up the original Super Mario Brothers today, and it doesn't tell you press A to jump or you know go right or left. And and there's all this work that's been done on how that uh the design of that game. Uh, you know, gets you to move in certain directions or like prompts you to take certain actions. Uh, But fundamentally, if you took someone who had never played a video game before and sat them in front of Super Mario Brothers, they're going to pick up the controller. They're going to like press all the buttons until they figure out what the buttons do. And then they're going to use those movements to like progress through the game. And that's it, right? Like that's how you figure out how to play a game. Uh, And that's how games teach us to play them, is they have uh, these kind of structures built into them uh, that require precisely this sort of self-directed or the the language that often shows up in game studies, the autotelic uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, activities, right? Uh, I mean, and that's this is the other thing that actually I was thinking a lot about while reading this book is at the end of the day, uh, like if I'm playing a video game like video game to video game, depending on whatever console I'm just pressing all the same buttons, but like the actions that happen on the screen are just kind of this fictional skin over like, I don't know my desire to figure out more novel and unique ways to press button combinations on my controller.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I, I I think that's right. I I think that, you know, there is this way that, um, emancipation in, um, uh, in this in Rancière's terms uh how that aligns with kind of like um, you know figuring stuff outishness uh, for you know as uh, another way of phrasing it what what i think it really gives us too is a way you know thinking about the relationship between the old the, the old master and the ignorant schoolmaster mm-hmm. right you know so thinking about humanist education methods the rod you know mm-hmm. and and progressive stages um thinking you know thinking those two relationships that kind of uh uh, transformation of understanding the history of education here, I think it gives us better ways of talking about forms of game design mm-hmm. uh, that are not just like better or worse ways of engaging with players, because we love to talk about that, right? Like pick up any given uh, GDC talk and you get to see a lot of assumptions about what what the good is when it comes to game design. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the uh, ignorant schoolmaster in a broad sense, the book, gives us maybe some better ways of talking about uh, qualitatively what's going on um, when we're playing a game. So, so I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that there there is this kind of self-directed transformational work that's going on in some games, but I think there are lots of games where the opposite is the case, where we're getting entirely the old master. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if the work of playing a game, of, of playing, say, a given MOBA game, is watching a lot of instructional videos and then grinding through a lot of like manual dexterity training in order to get to the point where you can play that game, or say playing Overwatch and like practicing flip uh, flick shots or whatever. Uh, that that feels like the old master to me, mm-hmm. right? That feels like here are some um, di- you know both uh, in the player community, but also from the perspective of game design, right? Uh, when you're making decisions about skill ceilings and skill floors and the way that you want to afford different uh, design capabilities for players you're making decisions about the kind of progressive stages of of player education you know one does not expect that you could pick up overwatch and play with a uh, high level player the first day that you play it right right because there is an assumption that is built in and there's also things like the ranked mode right or like skill-based matchmaking modes that are going to force you to go through progressive stages of getting better at the game and proving that you are better than other people, getting the A in the class, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, in order to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the language that I've used in the past for these kinds of systems is uh, is Foucauldian, right? Mm-hmm. I would u- I would use language of discipline to say this. And I'm, I'm, I would still use that language today. Same. But I think that what this gives us a little bit more... Um, handle on is that discipline is a way of talking about like kind of self comportment, right? This is, this is how I am morphing into the system and becoming a better game player. Um, The notion of the old master, the notion of humanist education versus uh, what Jacotat is doing, that gives us some ways of talking about the expectations on the side of design, Mm -hmm. right? What, how does this game think you as a student, quote unquote, of its game method? Right, Um, because League of Legends does not think you in the same way that Minecraft does, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, Resident Evil Eight does not think you in the same way that a kiddie horror show game does. Right, despite being generically in kind of same you know same spaces, um, you know, trying to generate similar affects or similar feelings, um, they they are they imagine their interlocutor. In different ways, and I think quite often in game design and in game studies we're, we're quite willing to say like, okay, well this this way of approaching a certain uh, mechanic is uh, you know, so think about the way that uh, amnesia the game amnesia has been written about in the past, right of like mm-hmm. um, the the weakness of the player character plus the like uh, indeterminacy of what is in the darkness. those mechanics create the optimal quote unquote a uh, way of making someone feel vulnerable. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about the Silent Hill games in this way quite often too. Um, but is that true or <laughs> is that just the old master's way of thinking it, right? Which <laughs> is that there are progressive stages of mechanical intervention that you have to go through to get to the right kind of horror experience. Right. As opposed to starting from the other side, what will the player, what will the student be able to do that allows them to understand the space as threatening, scary, horrifying, whatever, mm-hmm. um, w- you know, which is why I, you know, I've written about, you know, when uh, Unknown's Battlegrounds first came out, I wrote about that game as a horror game because it, it is this like, you know, sitting and waiting and hoping and you know, hoping you don't get shot or why Minecraft can feel haunted in some ways, maybe less now, but certainly when it originally launched, right? This yeah. kind of open world where this like tinkling music is happening um, it generates different kind of affects and different kind of responses in me as a player uh, that are not reducible to like the things that are happening directly in front of me right i'm I am embracing the system and finding myself as a player. As I'm doing it. So I think that this gives us some kind of different um, heuristics, you know, ways of understanding, or different knobs to turn even from a game design perspective of thinking, um, you know, less about the the top-down, how do we elicit certain behaviors, and more, if humans have a particular kind of behavior, then what kind of hooks can we give them to grab onto to kind of scrabble up that wall of, of you know, the thing that we're making, the artistic object that we're making. I think that this I think thinking about the ignorant schoolmaster as a text and as like a, a kind of a, a model of understanding how players interact with games can allow us uh, as game studies academics and as designers to have better ways of talking about the games that don't fit into our quote unquote good design. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this allows us to explode uh, notions of flow, exactly, or, to, or yeah, right, or to <laughs> explode uh, game feel. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, game feel is all about like creating the optimal modes of experience. It's heavily indebted to things like flow. And ultimately, I think that if you take Jaco seriously and you take Ron critique seriously, you've got to invert or, or uh, you know, transform some of that. But it sounds like you want to talk a bit about flow. Oh
1: yes. I mean, because flow is maybe the thing that I find uh, I can make the most connections with here. Game studies wise, because Ron says on uh, page 25, <clears throat> There is a will that commands and an intelligence that obeys. So we've already talked about that. Uh, There's a a kind of philosophical like vision of the human, uh, you know, being put forth here, the philosophical vision of the subject that we are uh, a will. Right. Uh, As you've said, that is could also be called desire. I think, you know, desire is avoided here because then it ends up sounding like psychoanalysis. So we have a will and then we have an intelligence. Uh, and then Ranciere continues, let's call the act that makes an intelligence proceed under the absolute constraint of a will attention. So... Uh, when you are sort of attentively focused on something, that is when your will and your intelligence have come into union, right? They are both being directed at uh, whatever your task is in front of you, uh, you know, teaching yourself French from this bilingual edition of the Telemac or whatever. Um, but it also might be uh, reading a book that you really, really like. Uh, you're not necessarily teaching yourself uh, something new from it, but you're trying to figure out that book. Uh, similarly, playing a video game, uh, that is attention. And if you go back to the Flow episode, uh, one of the critiques that I levied about Flow, as uh ends up theorizing and articulating it, is that I don't think there's a good way to uh, separate what Csikszentmihalyi calls a flow state from like the basic act of paying attention to something like that is Mm -hmm. nearly something exactly as I said it. I remember saying those things because that was a question I had at a certain point in that book. I was like, is flow just paying attention to something? Um, and here I think that yes, right, uh what flow is, uh to, to like push this through kind of the vocabulary we're getting from uh Jacotot and Ranciere, uh flow is all about how do we make will and intelligence coincide? How do we build a structure that most reliably makes those two things lock together? Um and the the my sort of, you know, critique of it is always that like I there's not a universal answer there. I don't think that's a thing like you can't just come up with the optimal way to put flow or to 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 link intelligence and will in in just like the most lockstep fashion. Um uh, mm-hmm. There, there are too many uh, sort of different types of uh, people, right? Too many different situations, like too many different uh, desires, really. Like in terms of what people want out of gameplay, uh, but nevertheless, right? We we see uh, uh, Chicksamahai saying things like, "Well, if you have a really bad factory job," and this is, uh, I think, good to contrast with some of the things you were saying about Ranciere's work on on factory workers. <laughs> Uh, if you're in a factory job and it's really boring for you and you don't like it, then just make a little game out of it. And like, you know, try to see how many different, uh, bits and bobs you can put together in an hour and then try to best that and then try to best that, uh, record and, and just so on ad infinitum. Uh, it is precisely like here, here is like a structure you can use to like force your, uh, intelligence to conform with your will or, you know, vice versa. Uh, and uh, it's it's the it's in weird ways. Right. It's like how how to become your own your own old master.
0: Right. How yes. how to I mean, how to yes. build the
1: old master in your head.
0: Yes. And, you know, for Ron Ciar, when he's looking at factory workers, he's like, oh, yeah, a lot of them were like hanging out at work and like composing poetry. Yeah. <laughs> and, like and like just doing their job and in the way that, you know, instead of making a game out of it, just doing factory work. And then being like, all right, I'm going to be a philosopher after work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to like write down all my thoughts that I had today. Um, and right. Like that, that is I- important and valuable time. Yeah. It's on 25 that he says, uh, Ron Sear says, let's call the act that makes an intelligence proceed under the absolute constraint of a will attention. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and I think the, the, you know, the big difference here is that um, for Jakutat's method, you know, emancipation as a method. Uh, which, you know, obviously has a very different resonance than what we have in the United States when we use the word emancipation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, different, bo- both around freedom, but uh, different, different modes, obviously, historical uh, uh, contingencies. Um, but, uh, you know, wh- what you're saying is that, you know, gives us the capability to think that that can be autonomous. Mm -hmm. You as an individual can, if you understand the, you know, your capability that you can learn and you can do it independently, then you can do whatever you want, right? Like this, this is a thing where you can choose the things you pay attention to. And if you realize that's kind of a capability of the human, you can just do whatever you want. And I don't, and importantly, right, for Csikszentmihalyi, that looks the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that looks the same for Jakutat, right? I don't think that everyone's going to read that, the, you know, the telemach in the same way. And come to it. And that's kind of why he's really big on community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of snake oil in pedagogical theory and educational theory. Um, One of the things that I think is not snake oil is learning communities, you know, where we find out that students do way better, way, way, way better when you cohort them and then allow them to move through classes together as a unit. Um, So friendships can build and they can understand each other um, and teach each other. That's that's a very kind of common uh, over the last 10 years ways that um, of thinking about how you uh, uh, get people through the educational system, right? A, a largely extractive and violent educational system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's this kind of question of, of, uh, you know, for the old master attention looks like the chick me high thing, right? Uh, here is a level of progressive stages that you can get better at and then move through and making a little game of that, you know, making a sub game within that broader quote unquote game, will allow you to get through it. And that requires a,
1: you know, the attention of the rod or mm-hmm. the attention underneath the rod, right? If you don't pay attention, you'll fail. Mm-hmm. Touching on that and also touching on something that I was trying to lock down earlier, um, like what the book does, right? For, for Jacotot and for Ranciere. Uh, this is on page 38. The book seals the new relation between two ignorant people who recognize each other from that point on as intelligent beings. And I think unpacking this uh, can be helpful in a couple of ways. Uh, yeah. So this is this is the you know uh, uh, universal teaching method. This is Jacotot's universal teaching method. Uh, both parties are ignorant. Jacotot does not know Flemish. His students do not know French. Uh, but it is the book that allows uh, both these two ignorant parties to come together and. Each understands the other as a a communicating being, right, as an intelligent being um, with the ability to, like, say things or to want things or to, you know, figure things out sort of together. Uh, And this is really interesting uh, because it is, and I I believe this is how it shows up here for Ranciere, uh, this is basically a critique of Plato. Uh, who is saying that? Who says, um, you know, in in the Phaedrus and in uh the Republic that it is it is speech, right? It is the speaking person where kind of intelligence and sensibility resides. Uh, and this is why we should always, you know, this is where the Platonic sort of suspicion of of writing and art generally comes from. Uh, is this sense that it is removed from the living or speaking being, where where true intelligence really? Uh, resides uh, in in, in a Christian language, right? When when Plato gets processed through uh, the church, right? This becomes the soul. Um, Mm -hmm. So what Jacotot slash Ranciere's kind of point here uh, ends up making uh, is that, no, actually, like it is, Precisely in uh, the sort of mediatory apparatus of the book, right? The, the language turned into writing uh, that two souls or two wills slash intelligences can actually come together and uh, do something, right? Make something kind of productive. Make something like a, a learning community.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and importantly, right, that co-recognition. Mm-hmm right i mean but because it really requires you to break to to uh, embrace universal teaching requires you to just reconcile with the fact that like there are no two human beings who can't learn mm-hmm. like period right and if that's possible then any kind of mediating object can can afford that and can give you the ability to recognize that other person mm-hmm. as someone who can learn right
1: and, oh, as an additional just point of contrast, because I, depending on on how people are following this episode, because it is kind of a weird one, uh, uh, to to help, I think, contrast that with, like, the, the method of the old master or the explicator, what the book does there uh, is, reinscribes precisely the kind of platonic point that I was making, that, okay, here's the book, you read that, but you don't really know what's going on in that book until someone in a classroom stands in front of you, a living... Sp- uh, being uh, speaks to you and tells you what that book really means, right?
0: Yeah, which for Rancière, right, is a reinscription of just culture. Yes, you know, or a reinscription of disciplinary apparatus, right? If if you and I sit down to read, okay, this actually happened to me. I think I've brought this up on a show before, um, but uh, I took a class once with um, in, in graduate school, early graduate school, took a class that was on uh, science fiction just in a broad sense. And it was just like, here are the ideas and theories that are going on in science fiction. And uh, we had a small group of graduate students, and three of us were um, American. And uh, uh, one guy, I think he was from Hungary. And we read The Time Machine. And, you know, just kind of uh, clearing the ground, getting started, learning about what science fiction is going on. So we just read the whole book for, you know, one of our classes and talked about it. And we ran into a wall immediately because, you know, for, for us in the United States, you know, if you, if you have any kind of education on H.G. Wells or any of that, um, you know, quote unquote, right, we know that this is a book that is on the side of the workers, mm-hmm. right? It is a book about how the people who were the Morlocks were forced underground and they become cannibals and evil and all these kinds of things precisely because of the class relation. You know, they are, they are, uh, it it is a moral fable, you know, from this perspective, it's a moral fable about, uh, uh, you know, basically, uh, chickens coming home to roost in some ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. the Eloi are the upper class and they force the the lower class, the factory workers, the miners, whatever underground. And in the far future, that turns into uh, a race that, uh, eats and consumes and, uh, you know, uh, from down below and then a, um, uh, you know, weaker race on top, species on top that does a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like this weird combination of of kind of eugenics and uh, what uh, what if the class relation continues?
1: Right, right, right. It's it takes the class relation as like the point of departure for like evolutionary divergence, and the point is like this would probably not be good.
0: Yes. And, right, the characters are sane. Yes. In the,
1: in, you know, it's
0: like there are all these characters, and they're like, oh, dang, that would be like evolution. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so that kind of thing's happening. But so we, we had this student, the, uh, this other student, an uh, uh, international student, I think I'm 99% sure he's from Hungary. Um, but he, he was like, no, this is about how Marxism is bad. And he was like, this is, if, you know, uh, the uh, workers, when they have too much power, right mm. it turns into this violent consumption of other people and this and this is why we should have a laissez faire system to create this division from ever happening in the first place and so everyone can be on top of of the ground right mm-hmm. uh, it never produced the situation to begin with right and so it's a different way of reading the history and i'm sure that there's plenty of of analysis that that uh, you know got him there of course being in a post communist country all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, but that was a moment that is very clear in my mind about the relationship between you know the in the educational culture you grow up in and what you believe the work does. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we did not know each other's languages, if we could only speak to each other, um, you know, if if we both got a book that was written in you know uh, Afrikaans, right, um, and it had a translation for each of us, we would eventually have to come to a moment where we could only talk about what was in that book, mm-hmm. uh, and that would produce a very different understanding, I imagine. Uh, I don't know what it would be, right? I'm not in this situation. I, I'm uh, as fully within the tradition of the old master as I could be. But I know for a fact it would be different from the conversation that we had there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, that's why, you know, he calls, Ron Ciro says that the book is uh, a totality. You know, that's the language he says. It has the whole world in it. Everything is in everything is another phrase that jacques is using. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use anything, any kind of external material object as the springboard for creating this educational method. Uh, but what it requires is a kind of stripping down or stripping off the assumptions of the old master. That the old that there could be someone who could tell you the right thing outside of it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty liberatory, pretty powerful.
1: To some extent, I think we've really covered a lot of the most game studies relevant things. The pa- the the back half of the book, sort of the last two especially, but maybe two to three chapters. Uh, are where we kind of get some of the ruminations on political implications of this, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can cover them, I mean, you know, pretty briefly, right? So, for instance, uh, Chapter 3 is just the one where uh, uh, Ranciere uh, runs through kind of, like, different uh, paradigms of, like, the state in this time period and how mm-hmm. jacques uh education just, like, Again, like subverts them, right? Or at least has some sort of subversive potential. Uh he uh, uh that is to say Roncier quotes uh, the Viscount de Bonald, uh who says that uh you know the the is this the human being? I can't I didn't put the whole thing, but uh his so Jacotat uh, mm-hmm. says man is a, a will served by an intelligence. That's on page uh, 52. Um, and then de Bonald says that man is an intelligence served by organs. And Ranciere sort of, un, you know, points out uh, this is a monarchical way of thinking, right? There, there's a, it, it presents the human body or like the human subject as a system with a thing on top, an intelligence, uh, served by numerous things below it. Uh, and this is uh, this comes up later again when he talks about uh, uh, Meninius Agrippa's uh, parable of the rumbling stomach during the plebeian uh, riots in, in uh, classical Rome. Uh, but it, it's a model of the state that naturalizes uh, a certain way of thinking about the body where the intelligence is located at the top in the head uh, and everything else is kind of below that and serves the intelligence. Whereas for Ijekotat, uh it's just two things right, will and intelligence, and they may be in alignment or they may be in disjunction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff that I I just had never thought about, but obviously is, you know, historical. Uh, Jacques-Otot talks about at one point um, that there are all these elaborate arguments, I guess, in the 1700s about the French language being superior yeah. due to the way that the word order functions mm-hmm. and that it's better to have the description or it's better to have descriptive language before the noun, right? So like adjective noun as opposed to noun adjective. Um, you know, so so there's this implicit kind of war against like Germanic languages going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's something really fascinating here going, uh, because Roncier, what he cares about partially in this chapter too, is that the state and just systems of domination in a broad sense, systems of domination are very interested in slicing up intelligence to talk about what is better and what is worse in order to then, uh, affirm one over the other. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you say, if you say that, uh, an intelligence served by organs is the right way, as you're pointing out, right. This is a, a restorationist monarchical model, right? That King is at the top and everyone else serves that. Um, the very theory of the way that the human works you know serves to um uh, gratify power you know mm-hmm. the way we think that the human body operates becomes a political system mm-hmm.
2: uh
0: which is absolutely you know still the case right um mm-hmm. uh, we, we do this all the time we we love a good head of household metaphor oh, yes. uh we love a good metaphor that says that the state should be run like a like a household mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, it, which asserts all kinds of values, right, <laughs> about patriarchy, uh, about e- economics, this kind of like, uh, you know, picket fence uh, uh, 1950s imagination that doesn't exist in any uh, serious way, right, mm-hmm. pure ideology. Um, but the the additional thing I like, and I'll just read this one quotation, it's, it's a little bit long, it's on 63, but it's, it's another moment where Ranciere is kind of elaborating how Jacotot was—how uh, this universal teaching method is so threatening, right, to, to uh, the mode of order. Um, so, quote, "...the relation between two ignorant people confronting the book they don't know how to read is simply a radical form of the effort one brings every minute to translating and counter translating thoughts into words and words into thoughts. The will that presides over the operation is not a magician's secret spell." It is the desire to understand and be understood without which no man would ever give meaning to the materialities of language. Understanding must be understood in its true sense, not the derisive power to unveil things, but the power of translation that makes one speaker confront another. Mm-hmm. Which, which I, I, I really love the writing there, which is partially why I'm, why I'm uh, reading it. But you know, what Roncier is saying is that like in, in order to be, um, you know, to educate yourself or to, to learn or anything, anything like that. What, what the, uh, normal systems of operation, you know, the way that we go about normally in our education system, we would think, oh, you have to like learn all the pieces first. But what, you know, Ron you is saying is, well, actually the way that we learn is really the thing that we're doing all the time, which is like this complex phenomenological thing of turning the world into thoughts and thoughts into the world. mm mm-hmm. You know, this is happening all the time. Every time you're reading and trying to figure out what the hell uh, poetic language is actually getting at, you're doing education in its most basic form. You're learning in, in its basic form, and it's, re- and it's realizing that. It's saying, oh, I don't have to do any of the things that I think education is supposed to do, but rather I can just follow the processes that are happening all the time. This is what you were talking about in terms of the mother tongue mm-hmm. earlier, right? This is another way of phrasing that. That that in and, of se- in and of itself will do it, and I really like the example he gives after this, which is the that uh, Jacques taught taught painting, and that everyone who saw the painting thought, paintings thought they were terrible. <laughs> um, but but he says the point here is not to uh, for someone to go like, oh, you are a good you know European master, you know painter, you know you're a great representational painter. The point of Jakutat's universal teaching when it comes to the arts in particular is not for you to produce beautiful work, you know, by the standards of the state, the education system, the critics, whatever. The point is for you to have the, you know, in the language we would use now, self-confidence, right, or the recognition that you're a painter. Mm-hmm. That the, the only thing that differentiates you from any other painter is sitting down and painting and learning how these tools work. hmm It's not the execution. It is the self-recognition that you could do something. Um, And, you know, that's... I I think you you and I have both been very vocal about this when it comes to something like game development, and I've been vocal about this when it comes to games criticism, right? The only difference between doing these things and being that thing is doing it. There was such a long time, and and I I tweeted about it a few times, where I would see people who would say, um, like in their Twitter bio, for years. It's actually kind of died off a little bit now. But they would say like, hopeful game designer like hopeful games critic or future game designer and i always wanted to be like well just start doing it and you are that thing right Mm -hmm. like you you are that thing um and in fact the people who just kind of do it and are that thing and are making the 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 best work like undoubtedly in my mind you know jack king spooner i i know that uh you know i've founded jack king spooner studies many times on the show (laughs) But right, I mean, that is someone who looked at, at the game form and was like, I think I have interesting things to do with it. And, you know, you, you look at the, those games and they are hand-drawn, hand-crafted, photographed, programmed in interesting ways, put together, their spaces operate in a way that truly no other space or, or game developer designer ever has. And, and the only difference between anyone uh, and that is just doing the thing mm-hmm. um and and recognizing that this is just a, uh, something you can do that you don't need someone to give you permission or tell you how to do it um and i realize that i'm sounding like the most annoying 1970s like <laughs> dude with a leather jacket on right now but that also is what you know Jacques was saying <laughs> in the you know the 1800s um so uh you know that, that that's just how it is but you know I, I i don't think people accuse me of being like a radical utopian in too many ways <laughs> uh but this is the one way uh you know i think you can pick up a book and you can begin reading it and you can come to something that might benefit you i think you can pick up methods of artistic creation and begin doing them and uh you should uh radically reject anyone who tells you you can't do that yeah uh because he can
1: yeah. like what Ranciere says on page 56 meaning is the work of will uh and then he goes on from there to sort of uh you know unpack that uh what we're getting at and this should i think uh, be made clear this is not like the secret Right. Uh, no, no, this is the no, like no, capital. No, no. I, I don't know if anyone listening even remembers what this is, but it's not like sort of this like life hacks to, you know, manifest the the things that you want. Like because uh, this is the other like good uh parallel slash contrast to draw here is that that is what flow is. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Flow is 100 percent like I have solved your problems in doing everything forever because all you have to do is enter the flow state. And then you can, you can like have a great time working in the factory or being a brain surgeon or, or whatever, uh, it, but like, you know, implementing flow in whatever way is going to like give you the dividends. Um, mm-hmm. and Ranciere is very clear here. Um, this is not like, uh, the secret. It's not just like manifesting. It's not like, oh, if everyone just tried harder, they would accomplish the things that they want. Um, the, the point is that people can do whatever they want. Uh, that's just not necessarily a, a recipe for success because the thing that determines what success looks like is uh, the order of division that wants to make these distinctions between uh, the, the master and the student or like the person who knows more than the person who knows less. Right. Um, the thing that is yeah. worth more than the thing that is worth less.
0: Mm hmm and you know there's a kind of uh, contagion to to emancipation and universal education in these terms right like the the thing that's critical is communicating this to other two, to other people as well right mm-hmm. like i'm a painter you know uh, opens it up to other people to recognize that mm-hmm. now chapter 4 and chapter 5 are explicitly about how society uh, will crush that very impulse yes <laughs> and and prevent it so what happens to to jacquotat is that his method goes wide and, uh, gets, you know, it's happening in sites of, uh, education. So like military academies, um, weirdly enough, like senior education facilities, that's one of the places where it lasts the longest. Um, and everyone hates it, <laughs> uh, b- because it gets rid of the hierarchy in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's part of it. And it gets rid of the hierarchy of the state and it gets rid of lots of hierarchical positions in which the old master has to tell you the right way to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one likes it. Like, not a single person likes it. And chapter four um, is just kind of about how that occurred, you know, kind of some step by step stuff. We don't really have to uh, recount it here. Um, but if you're interested in reading Ranciere or you want to hear more about it or you're checking out other stuff, chapter four is where Ranciere is trying out some ideas that are going to show up in his very famous book, Disagreement. It also shows up in Dissensus, the, the book you were talking about earlier, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but around these two concepts of the distribution of the sensible. So, what are shared uh, understandings of the world that have power? That's the distribution of the sensible. What can be sensed and understood, and then there, uh, and then what he calls the police later on as well, which is the the power that is used that disciplines and transforms you into a person who sees what is right and ignores what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, part of emancipation within this book and part of the universal teaching method is precisely to get rid of the distribution of the sensible. It, it's not about like the exact right way to water your crops, right? It's about recognizing that you have the capacity to look at the world and investigate your farm and understand how to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe to discover new ways, right. That are doing that. Um, but so that's, what's happening in chapter four. Um, and, um, you know, Ron Sierra is very explicit into that chapter of basically saying that Jacotat's method, if you follow it, society becomes impossible. Because we would have to obliterate the very idea of what we think of as a society. Yes. Um, it, It would require a lot of autonomous organization it would get rid of many forms of social governments and, and Ranciere here is not, he's not really a utopian on this. He's like, it, this might be bad. <laughs> it, it might be bad to like, uh, you know, create like a universal individualist society in which everyone is exercising their own individual forms of reason all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you, I get a sense that he thinks eh, that might not be worse than what we have right now. We could maybe stand is, to
1: slide a few more degrees in that direction compared to what's happening at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Right.
0: In in which, you know, and I think there would be this is the thing to to think of, too, and, you know, not to be too hyper contemporary about this. Right. I think that you could hear a lot of what we're saying and come to the conclusion that someone would become like a, I'm going to do my own research kind of person.
1: I'm going to become the Joker.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you, I, I think Jacotot is joker-fied 100%, y- yes. right? <laughs> but, but you know the idea of, like, I don't want to uh, do something that is good for, for the state in a general sense, or I don't want to do something good for society because I'm my own individual. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my own research mm-hmm. on whether, uh, whether or not this medical in- intervention is good or not. And I think that Jacotot's method, universal teaching— and uh, and Ron Sierra would say, well, actually, that kind of thinking is just a different old master, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you know, the vast conspiratorial thinking that is overwhelmingly consumed large chunks of the United States and a lot of English-speaking countries. And I can only speak to those because that's really the only ones that I have indirect experience with. But in those places, we, we have to be very careful because what's actually happening is that it's not as if there's one old master yeah. and then one, you know, uh, universal education method we have now proliferated old masters, Mm -hmm. right there. There are traditions in American conservatism and American progressivism that are uh, old masters of just different forms, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, and we have this gives us at least some ways of thinking about that. And I think this would be very helpful if you're thinking about writing on political video games in a broad sense, uh, because they create models and then evaluate you based on those models. You know, go play any of those, you know, democracy games that have been made and you can see this exact thing working out. And then is there any way in a kind of spreadsheet simulator political game in order to create emancipation in a broad sense, Mm -hmm. you know, in the way that it's meant here and no, absolutely not. So what then is like the thing that you do about that or how might you make a game that does that? Does that look like something like, um, you know, Lykenia by mole industria Mm -hmm. that obliterates all those kinds of things uh, and gives you very big abstractions. But that's just some thoughts.
1: I, I promised I would do this. I just want to point out this is the chapter where Ranciere, uh just torpedoes like <laughs> the early modern humanist thinking on oh, rhetoric and yes. poetry. Yeah. Mm. Um so just, I just want to lay this out because it's one of those things where I did, I never expected to read this. I mean, not not this specific book. I mean, this specific point, like I did never, I never expected to encounter a point like this that just totally over, not, not overturns an argument uh, that I've made, but like makes an argument that I've made so much more easy for when I am uh, processing this into a, a monograph project. Uh, there is a distinction made in early modern humanist classrooms. Uh, between the art of rhetoric and the art of poetry. Uh, and this is a very tendentious distinction uh, because both rhetoric and poetry are means of using language to do things. Uh, and this results in a lot of anxiety for educators in England um, at this time uh, because rhetoric is supposed to be the art of persuasion, um, whereas poetry is... Uh, not nece- it can be persuasive, uh, but it's not necessarily going to persuade you of the truth because poetry is going to be about things that did not happen or could not happen, impossible things, untruths. Whereas rhetoric, properly understood, is supposed to be about leading people toward the truth, right? Using language to explain the truth or lead people toward it and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so the humanist classroom has this really weird, fraught relationship where uh, students are constantly learning both rhetoric and poetry but also having to learn to distinguish uh, between them. And if you're, you know, a Deridian, you, you know the problem already, uh, which is that they keep collapsing into one another. You can use rhetoric mm-hmm. to knowingly persuade someone of something that isn't true in which case does it stop being rhetoric or does it become poetry what happens if poetry ends up being uh you know a particular poem feels more true than any particular piece of political rhetoric and so on and so forth um so uh a, a kind of way that this division ends up working out uh is that uh you know Rhetoric is considered the form of language manipulation that is closer to the soul, closer to the truth. Uh, and that's the one that we really want to teach people because that's the one that's going to help you function in society. Poetry is fun, uh, but not as important precisely because it's going to spin off into untruths that may lead you astray or may result in, in confusion or obfuscation. Uh by way of Jacques Autot, uh Ranciere completely inverts this relationship. Uh, 83, the power of rhetoric, the art of reasoning that tries to annihilate reason under the guise of reason hot damn right what he is like he is saying rhetoric is the tool of the old master because rhetoric is the thing that asserts this is true and this is why you should believe it and it is the speech form or the 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 word form that is dedicated to getting you to take whatever you think discard that and assume its mantle uh so following on from that 84 poetic language that knows itself as such doesn't contradict reason. On the contrary, it reminds each speaking subject not to take the narrative of his mind's adventures for the voice of truth. So it is precisely, and this is this is a defense of poetry in this time period, uh, it's the one that uh, Philip Sidney makes in his defense of poesy, but taken to like an incredible extreme. It is precisely because we don't expect, because we come into poetry knowing that it's not true, that like we have actually a more uh, empowered relationship with it, because we know at a certain point in a poem, we can be like, I just don't agree with that. Like, that's not true. That's not what I think. Um, And so uh, Runcier continues, the the perversion of this, right, is when a poem, this is a quote, a poem is taken as something other than a poem. Uh, Rhetoric is perverted poetry, is specifically what he ends up saying, right? It's not that, because this is how the humanists are thinking of it. Uh, Poetry is a perversion of the art of rhetoric, essentially, right? It's an offshoot or an outgrowth that is, uh, diverted from the truth into nonsense. And Ron is just like, no, 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 it's rhetoric. That is the perversion of poetry. And I think that rips.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it, and it also like kind of puts pressure too on, uh, yeah, uh on the same uh division that happens within games right mm-hmm. that uh and it's one that maybe i've been uh pushing a little bit too hard too uh in this very episode you know that um that that we might want to think uh, about a relationship between um uh, di- uh didacticism and abstraction mm-hmm. you know as two opposite poles but they are running into each other in the same way that rhetoric and poetry are because of the of the means that we engage with them mm-hmm. um you know that those things are happening
1: um i'm glad that that was uh, invigorating for you. <laughs> it was it was like like i was sitting on the train reading it and i was like holy hell like <laughs> i'm so glad this book found its way into my hands mm-hmm. you turned uh, you turned to the mother of four beside you and said did you see this did you see <laughs> yes. this have you heard <laughs> rhetoric is a perverted form of poetry have you heard the good news? <laughs> uh, we
0: should put that on the shirt. Yes, Rhetor- Rhetoric is the perverted form of poetry. We'll do that. I'll, we'll, we'll make it. If you'll make the like image file, I'll throw it on the shirt. Okay. And we'll release it the same day the episode comes good, out. Good, good. I'll put that together. <laughs> um, the um, So check it out right now. It's it's uh, you got, what, what is it? Uh, rangeTouch.com slash shop. Yes. Is that true? Mm-hmm. There you go. Go to rangeTouch.com slash shop. Click on the link there. You can go buy that t-shirt this very moment. Um, the last, uh, the last chapter is called The Emancipator and His Monkey, uh, which is fun. Monkeys do not show it, up.
1: <laughs> they don't.
0: This has got to be some sort of, uh, I'm thinking maybe like an organ grinder reference, mm-hmm. something like that. This is the thing too, if you've never read French theory before is that this, this book is full of like, uh, fun little ironies and like little jokes <laughs> and things like that. And that is something that characterizes French work, yes. this kind of uh, almost, uh, sarcastic Uh, tone sometimes and you have to be very careful Mm -hmm. when you read French theory. If you're not familiar with that, because you can sometimes be reading something that is meant to be taken as ironic or sarcastic as like a claim by the author. Um, I've seen people, I've seen published work where people have like taken something that is clearly being criticized in a paragraph and Stripped it of that context because maybe they didn't get it or they didn't understand it and then have argued that an author has made the exact opposite argument of what they're saying. I've seen it within game studies, in fact. Um, so that's a thing to be aware of. That's a little bit of a trickiness to to French theory, I think, to know before you go in. Um, but this chapter is basically just about how the humanists ate universal education. Mm-hmm. It's about how they warped it into just a different form uh, of uh, quite literally progressive form, mm-hmm. you know, he uses that language, a progressive form of humanist education, but one that ultimately turned it back into a system in which old masters had to exist, but they were like more hip and they stood on the desk and recited poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very much the uh, Dead Poet Society yes. chapter of of the book. Uh, unfortunately, um, it's pretty interesting. I think the hi- history here, the Count de Lestery, like the story about him, is really cool. He's like running around and founding all these educational organizations and like learning about rutabagas yes. and, and and sheep and like taking you know doing agriculture everywhere. He seems to be a cool you know in 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 the history of the aristocracy. There are not many cool people, I wouldn't say. But Ranciere seems to find a pretty good, you know, he's pretty good at finding, like, the people who were at least interesting and using their immense wealth built on the back of colonization and violence to do things that were not uh, inherently evil, even though perhaps the the way they got that money was inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but that's kind of what's going on here. Um, uh, the if I wrote down what I thought was, like, the... Thesis statement of you know the chapter here and of the of the whole book itself, you know, very French to put this at the Mm -hmm. end. But it's on 119, quote, progress is the pedagogical fiction built into the fiction of the society as a whole. Meaning that the way that we imagine progressive stages of education, of social organization, think about our um episodes on Hosinga and Kalwa, what we were calling anthropological racism, you know. Ron Sears being critical of that here. It's this notion of progressive stages and movements that can be gotten to through programmable and, um, uh, differential ways, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the French of this time period, no, they are not ignorant. Like, uh, you know, I don't know a, uh, uh a native of a Caribbean Island. Mm-hmm. Right. And they define themselves in that by this narrative of progress, by this understanding that they have built themselves as something different that there is not universal intelligence, that people are not equivalent in intelligence across uh, all of humanity. That fiction is the fiction that is necessary to make everything from the classroom operate to colonization of, in the French case, you know, Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, the, it is the same ideology that fuels both of those systems. And Jacotot presented a method that might obliterate that you know, if taken seriously, and the best way to get rid of that, you know, we saw people legislating it essentially, you know, by decree or whatever in chapter four, we saw people fighting it, but the thing that kills it, is it being absorbed by,
1: uh, progressive educational movements. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the perspective that like, all right, so we have an educational system, uh, that, serves people unequally right there are there are people who are benefiting from this more than others uh and so what the mission of like education reform is then is to take the people who are being underserved and just like try as hard as we can to prop them up so that they are on a level with the people who are Doing all this work without being propped up, right? And and not really thinking about like, well, you know, maybe those people who are, are better served by the system have things like, you know, a class background uh, that, you know, it, it just becomes entirely compensatory for the order of things as they are, rather than uh, trying to rethink what these structures are or should be.
0: Yeah, and Kristen Ross, you know, in the translator's introduction, we haven't really talked about it too much because there's really not a reason to for our purposes here. But Kristen Ross, in the translator's introduction, if you read this book, you know, dear listener, you might want to check that out because um, she, you know, she makes it very clear that uh, Rancière is writing this in response to the rise of sociology, and particularly the sociology of education in France in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And the answers that people like Bourdieu, if you if you are by the way a media studies academic, you are very familiar with Pierre Bourdieu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what their conclusions come to are you know what what Ross kind of demonstrates in, uh, as a kind of vicious circle of um, uh, recognition, right? Sociology recognizes that there are underrepresented people within the education system who are not being served. Uh, those are ob- often class and race based reasons for that, right? Mm-hmm. They they are immigrants. Uh, they are um, uh, poor and they don't have the the same number of opportunities but the the addition, additional complication to that or the problem with that for Bordeaux and the rest of these educational sociologists is that they don't know what they don't know mm-hmm. so they don't know that these opportunities and methods exist and so they are denied those and then they develop resentment about it and so they can never be kind of captured by the education system to be made into better modern subjects or whatever mm-hmm. right there's a lot of ideology that's baked into this and so, you know, Roncier is clearly frustrated by this and is like, yes, if you cr- construct a system that is predicated based on exclusion, the people who are excluded won't learn how it works <laughs> because they're excluded from yes. it. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, of course that is true. <laughs> And then so Ranciere, of course, in, in, in key philosopher action said, I'm going to write a book about the 1700s about this and <laughs> <laughs> 1800s. I'm going I'm to write a book about the French archive. But that's what the book is getting to is, is uh, you know, for Ross in that interpretation of the translator's introduction, what we have to recognize is that this is still going on, not just kind of structurally, but the very... Um, uh, occlusion that happens within this. Mm-hmm. You know, the the old master can't see what it can't teach, and it can't understand anything other than uh, working within the system as it stands. And so it, it will never see the student who, who won't fit there. Um, it's a similar thing that's going on in 1980s France, mm-hmm. is what Rancière is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the old master system, despite having progressive politics... You know, people like Bordeaux are doing these studies in order to try to figure out, well, how do we make first-generation immigrants? How do we allow them to access French society in an equitable way? And Ron Ciaro is pointing out, well, that is, in fact, a structural, you know, it is a supporting beam mm-hmm. of French capitalism in this moment that they would not be able to access those things. Um, and that is because of racism, capitalism, and enforced exclusion. Uh, It is about keeping them within a certain level of the hierarchy so that they could never become, you know, in his terms, emancipated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he says, if we look to Jacob Jacotot, he might give us some ways of thinking about doing that. And, of course, in philosopher uh, fashion, he never makes these connections. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) Like even and he never even talks about Bordeaux. This is very French (laughs) academia. (laughs) But, you
1: know, (laughs) the subtweet.
0: Yeah, it's the subject. You never cite the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. You, you pretend you answer the enemy's argument, but in a way that pre- presumes that they're not even worth speaking of, right? Mm-hmm. We all know here who we're talking about. And this is one of the tricky things about reading French philosophy and theory. Oh, 1950 until now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or Actually, I, I will say for all of the period that I have experience in, you know, which is like 1900 until now you just have to like do some historical digging to figure out what kind of weird argument that they were in that that got them to this point um but you know for Ranciere, it's about figuring out and certainly through his academic production through the 70s and 80s he he transitions in the 90s and the 2000s into like broader questions of politics but You know, in those early works, he's trying to figure out, like, how did people live their lives in a way that were fulfilling and societally creative without just being kind of cogs that are plugged into a machine that eats them? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they did. Mm -hmm. And we lived through, or in France, they lived through 200 solid years of constant revolutionary transformation. You know, whether that is the French Revolution itself or the kind of bouncing back and forth that happens after that, all the way up into the World Wars, which radically transformed France again, Um, and then into the 1960s, which radically transformed France again. Um, You know, I don't think they've had, uh, I mean, I guess the uh, Yellow Vest Movement, you know, for Mm -hmm. all of its uh, complicated and unclear political maneuvers, they shut down the country in big, weird ways, Um, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the French have a tradition of this, and Roncier was someone who was looking back in the archive trying to figure out how did it happen, and how might you produce those conditions again? You know, he's being a good old-fashioned, despite throwing the, the, uh, the moniker off. He's being a little bit of a structural Marxist about mm-hmm. it. But yeah, that's what's going on in The Ignorant Schoolmaster. Uh,
1: Michael, it seems like you enjoyed reading this oh, book. Oh, absolutely, 100%.
0: I think it's great. I I really liked it. I I, I had a good laugh because Ronsier is funny. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, he loves to do these little like stingers about like. And Jean Jacques Tat didn't know anything. It's it's like it, uh, it is rare that you get to say this sort of thing, but this is a book of philosophy that is a pleasure to read. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's not like, got a strong
0: story. Yeah. you know, I I think you know if you hear us say that, you might be like in comparison to what? But I you know there's a narrative that you can follow. And he's doing a lot of philosophy in there. But I would encourage you, if you're getting kind of stuck on the philosophy parts or if there are kind of languages that you're not familiar with, just be a -a jacotard about it it, and keep reading. (laughs) Just go through it because, um, you know, Ranciere is very good as an author in a general sense of uh, repeating things and giving you different examples of things. Uh, One could say that the vast majority of his academic output has just been giving you new examples of the exact same thing over and over again. Um, and that's good. That's really helpful for kind of building out the system and kind of understanding what's going on or taking pieces of it and doing whatever the hell you want to with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I want to read here uh, at the end this is on 139, the last page of the book. Um, uh, so he, uh, jacques dies in 1840, and this is written on his uh, tombstone, or on his tomb, on his tombstone, his tomb. I believe that God created the human soul capable of teaching itself by itself and without a master. Okay, so that's the thing. And this is what Rontier writes. This kind of thing is certainly not written, even on the marble of a tomb. A few months later the inscription was desecrated. Mm-hmm. It's like even even the final, you know, the arc of, of Jacques Tot's life has to be obliterated. Let us know how you felt about this episode. This is probably the most wild card of any wild card episode that we've done. I mean, it truly is outside the domain. We've had to do some some um, shoving it into the, the realm of game studies. If you like this, let us know. If you didn't like it, if you'd rather stick to just straight up game studies books, we're probably not going to do that across the board, but uh, but you know, maybe we can pull it pull it a little bit closer. Let us know if it's helpful for you. Um, and uh, I think we both encourage you to pick up this book. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me on twitter.com at WarrenIsDead. If you like the show and you want to support us making the show, I encourage you to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash rangedtouch, and you can also go to rangedtouch.com to see all the other things that we do. Uh, we make a show about Stephen King books being read in publication order. We make a show about Fallout, uh, and we make a show about Homestuck and trying to understand it and doing a kind of weird... Uh, historical, I say we, you are doing a w- weird historical bit of research and I'm just reading it and uh, uh, doing no research whatsoever. So it's a weird kind of combinatory old master emancipated <laughs> reader uh, kind of thing going on here where I'm I'm universally educating myself about mm-hmm. about uh, what's going on in Homestuck and you're helping guide me through that and give me some um, you know, interesting things to think about. And uh, I think people are really enjoying that show. If you like the deep dives we do on this show and you want to see us do that with one singular object while bringing in some academic work to help kind of understand it. And Michael, you've been doing a lot of that and it's been really great. Uh, I think you would enjoy that. So if you're a game studies academic or if you're a student and you're like, I don't know what Homestuck is. What is it? I really encourage you to check out Homestuck made this world because I think there's a lot of overlap between the conversations we have on that show And we have on this show. We make a lot of reference to this show over there. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you can support us with money. We really prefer that. (laughs) Uh, But if you can't support us with money, tweet about the show. Tell people about it. Please send an email to someone you think might like this show and let them know. We only grow by word of mouth. We had the opportunity. I'm going to talk about this on several shows this month. But we had the opportunity recently oh to take sponsorship. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to say from who. Maybe we'll save that for a bonus episode yeah. about who that was. Right. <laughs> well, maybe that'll be on a Just King Things bonus episode. But uh, we were offered the opportunity to take some advertising dollars. May I say, mm-hmm, please.
1: just to just to sell this entirely. Cameron called me to tell me about this opportunity. Like that is that is that, that that could help you characterize it, right? It was a thing that like I was on my way home from work. Cameron like called me on my phone, which rarely happens. To be like Michael, <laughs> this has come across uh, uh, my inbox. Please let's talk about it. So continue. This could be
0: very lucrative, Michael. You know is, mm-hmm. is what I was saying. Mm-hmm.
1: And ultimately,
0: we said, no way. This is for the fans mm-hmm. of Range Touch. We're not taking those dollars. Although, however, if you have a very lucrative advertising offer, we would be interested in hearing it. Uh, but that one was not where we wanted to be, uh, although it is very funny. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we'll be back in a month. We don't know what our next episode is, I don't think. Uh, no, but I have I have a
1: pitch. Um, we can save that for off-air, though. Oh, well, you can pitch it to me right now. Let's hear it. Well, uh, this might have a little bit of a crossover with Homestuck made this world. Um, there's a book that I've been meaning to read called "Game Worlds: Virtual Media and Children's Everyday Play" by Seth Giddings. and it is Let's a, do it. it is about how uh like children's play, right kids playing together uh has or has not maybe changed as a result of the you know uh, uh, permeation of life by virtual worlds and video games. Let's do it. I like Seth Giddings' work a
0: lot. I did not realize that Giddings had written a book for some reason. I don't I don't know why. Uh, but uh, let's do it. That's what it is. So what's the name of that again?
1: It is called Game Worlds, Virtual Media and Children's Everyday Play. And I think it'll be an interesting kind of, uh, outgrowth from what we've talked about here. And as I said, that the specific reason I want to read this, uh, book is because I think it is important for the research for the Homestuck podcast, which is also the research for a Homestuck book that I am writing. (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll be back next month with that. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for spreading the word, right? Like I said, we're
1: only word of mouth, and we will see you in a month. Remember, the social is predicated on its exclusions.